Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to you fathers. <laughs> you know, well, fathers, it's a, you're more important than you know. And you might not have felt it this morning from the greeting that you got from your kiddos, and that's okay. You just keep fighting for them and keep loving them, and that's what being a father is. And you can delight in that because uh, you're teaching them how to love through your love for them, and that's how you fight for them. And today we are looking at the story of a man who was not a father, but he saw himself as a father to all of the people in all of the churches that he planted. And it's the story of Saul who would become Paul, and it's the most popular conversion story in the history of the world. And it's popular because of the radical transformation that happens to Paul who would become Saul. He goes from being the greatest villain that Christianity has really known, like a, like a man who is a villain, Saul, and then he would become a hero of the faith and renamed Paul. And all through conversion is what happened. Now, what is conversion? Conversion is this paradigm shift that comes upon us where we move towards trusting in Christ as our only hope for salvation and for change. So we have a paradigm shift where we move from Christ, seeing him as our only hope for salvation and for change. And when we think of conversion, there is one conversion that the Christian goes through. One. However, your entire life, it will be as if you are becoming converted. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ has you. He is yours. He's calling you now. Can you hear? And, and as he holds you, he will not let you go. And what that means is he's wrestling with you. Because you've got these doubts that you're dealing with. You've got these questions. And he wrestles with you through them. And as he wrestles with, them, with you, every single time he wins in this wrestling, every time he wins, you win. Because you're becoming more of the version that you're made to become one day in heaven. Every time he wins. And what we're going to do today, we've done this, we did this last week. We're going to have a Q&A at the end of the sermon. It's going to be in the service we did this last week, and everyone seemed to enjoy it, so we're going to keep going until it makes sense to not do. So if you have questions throughout the sermon, you could write them down, and there'll be a number on the screen, and you can text them into me after the sermon is over. We're, doing, we're in Acts 9, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word to us. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And Saul asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. All right, the first point, who needs conversion? The answer is everyone. The rule follower, the rule breaker, the generous, the greedy, the hard worker, the lazy mooch, the villain and the victim, Hitler and all of his victims all need conversion. You and me, all of us, all of us need conversion. And we look at Saul Saul was a rule follower. He was probably the most passionate rule follower that you will ever meet. In the book of Philippians, here's how he talks about his, himself in the past. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I was the best of the best. My work and my record was unmatched. And then he says, but I counted it all as rubbish. Why? So he might be converted. He counted all the good things he did as rubbish. The Greek word for this is a slang word. It's a cuss word that refers to dung. And basically what he's saying is, in order to be converted to Christianity, you must go to the extreme of seeing every good thing you did and count it as nothing, count it as dung, count it as trash, thrown to the side in order to come to faith. It could be that the, the greatest threat in your life is all the good things that you are doing. Because you think the good things you are doing are making a way for you. Paul saying, I counted it all as rubbish. Now, why? Why do you have to throw all the good things away in order for conversion to happen for you? Well, the way it goes is this. You, you have two options in this life. You either bring your record or Christ's record to God. Every other religion will tell you, work on your record. Make it beautiful. Make it pristine. Make it wonderful so that you can say to God, and you got to hope, like hope your, your good outweighed your bad, and you hold it up to God, and you say, God, how did I do? And in Christianity, it says, no, 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 no. Throw all of that away. Because here's the problem 
as soon as you bring your good stuff, you also bring your bad stuff. In one little tiny violation, like the smallest thing, it's vile to God. And here's why it's vile, because the, the things of heaven are perfect. And as soon as one little sin enters heaven, it's no longer heaven anymore. It's now fallen down to the earth and become like what the earth is. So, well, your, your good stuff comes with bad stuff. But if you take the record of Christ, which he gladly gives you, and you offer it up to the Father, the Father says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Again, it could be your greatest threat to understand in Christianity is that you're holding up all the good things that you've done. And most churches throughout America are filled with people who are misunderstanding Christianity. You think of, imagine this, imagine there's a pastor of a church and, and in the congregation there is a, a man who is a good man. He's a hard worker. He's done a lot of good things. And the pastor goes down after the service is over and he says to the man, Bob, we're going to call him Bob. Bob, Bob, I've been praying for you and I've been thinking about you a lot and I think it's time for you to be converted to Christianity. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, well, Bob, I've been praying for you and I think it's time. Bob says, what are you talking about? I'm looking around at the people in this room and I'm far better than they are. I give more than them. I serve this church. I've been here from the beginning. I've been here for 40 years, Mr. Pastor, longer than you've been alive. And the pastor says, no, you don't understand, Bob. I'm not talking about that. You are far more moral than I am. I'm talking about Christianity. I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about you laying all of your good things aside and finding Christ. And the man is enraged. And he leaves the church he's been part of for 40 years, never to return again. The Titanic was called the unsinkable ship that sank And often what we do is we build what we think is a Titanic with our works. But eventually we will find ourselves sinking into the bottomless abyss. Because what happens is the rod of justice, the rod of righteousness, searches you out. Becomes acquainted with all of your ways. And it's checking the hull that's keeping you afloat above the waters. And as this rod is poking around, eventually it finds your vulnerable spot. Where your sin has taken hold in that area of your life, and it pokes a hole, and then you sink down to the bottom. To become a Christian, you have to jump ship and climb up upon the ship of Christ and rely on his work on your behalf and let him captain you to the celestial shores of paradise. It's sad to me, sad, how many people who are not rule followers but rule breakers say, I could never go into a church. They make this silly comment like, I would burn up if I went into a church. There's no way that God, I mean, look at what I've done. You know, the, the, the problem is they're thinking too, too much about themselves. And then the rule follower, well, he's thinking too much of himself too. He thinks he's done it. He looks around at all the rest of the world and says, look at me. God must love me. Look how hard I'm trying over here. And the Christian thinks no more of rules, but only of grace. That is what conversion is about. And then we have to ask the next question. Our next point is, what what part of us needs conversion? And the answer is the whole self. All of us, every bit of us. 
So the, the mind, when we think of the whole self, we think of the mind, your thinking, we think of the will or your actions, and we think of the heart or your affections. And oftentimes people think in order to become a Christian, I have to turn off my mind and just rely on faith. And that's ludicrous because all throughout the Bible, there's always words over and over again about engaging the mind. In order to be, be converted, you have to engage the mind, the, the reason, and the faith all together as one. And if you look at Saul, he has this encounter with God. And right after the encounter happens, we hear about his people, his disciples, his friends who are with him, and, and they say, we heard it. And what that, what's happening in that moment is Saul is checking to see, like, am I crazy? Did I just have a hallucination? Did I really hear from the Lord Christ? Is this real? And they confirm, yes, we heard the voice. And then he goes to Ananias. And Ananias says, I had the same vision, the same vision that you had. That's why we're meeting here right now in this moment. Paul, Paul wants nothing to do with Christianity or Christ. He hates Christians and he hates Christ. But when he's confronted with the facts, he converts. The church should be a conversion community. Meaning we need to be a place where believers and skeptics have authentic community and honest conversations about faith and doubt. And this is good for everyone. Let me tell you why, if you're a Christian, why this is good for you. Because I know you, and I know you have doubts, and I know you have stuffed them away, and you're trying not to let them come up to the surface. And then a skeptic comes in and says, hey, I have a question about something that I read in the Bible. And it stirs all the doubt that you've been trying to avoid all up in you. And when that happens, you become terrified, you get scared, and you want it to go away, but now you're forced to deal with it. You're forced to think with your mind, to work through the doubts that you have. Years ago, I used to have this recurring nightmare that God isn't real. And it wouldn't go away. And finally, because what I was doing is I had doubts, and I was wrestling them away, stuffing them down, and they kept bubbling up in this nightmare until finally I said, all right, I'm just going to deal with this. And every part of me that was having doubts, I just went in and I started thinking, I started processing, I started reasoning through the doubt, and the nightmare's gone now. It's so good for you to start wrestling with your doubts because then it's going to help you come out on the other side with more joy and with more faith. But you have to be bold enough, you have to be fearless enough to step into it. Or you have to have a healthy dose of fear and say, God, I need your help when I'm entering into this doubt as I'm dealing with it. And then you have to move now from your mind to your affections or your heart. Paul talks about later in the book of Philippians, Paul, Saul, who became Paul, he talks about the joy that he has in Christ that cannot be stolen by any circumstances at all. Meaning nothing can take the joy that he has because he has Christ and Christ will never leave him or forsake him. And the earthly circumstances he is facing is bringing him sorrow, but yet joy at the same time because he has Christ. And he's not going to lose that joy because he can't lose Christ. There is a way to pray where you say nothing to God and you don't try your heart out to see if he has anything to say to you. You just simply are with him. You're just with him. The promise in the Bible over and over again is, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. 
The other day, I went out to go and look at the sunset, and on the way out, I was praying, and I had this moment with God, and I, it was just, I was just with him, and it gave me joy, and I looked at the sunset, and it was nothing compared to the joy that I felt walking to go find that sunset. He's enough, and he's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And then so we move on from our affections. So we went from our mind to our affections and now our will or our actions. As soon as Paul has this experience, God says, go. Christ says, go, and he obeys. He listens. There's a problem that I see people fall into, and that is this. God does not have my good in store. He doesn't really care about my happiness. He gives me all these rules, and I don't trust him anymore because I think these rules, they're not going to give me joy. And, and if you're a Christian, you're thinking this way a lot. You see the things he tells you to do, and it kind of like, ah, why does he have to make me do these things that I know aren't going to be fun? And you're missing it because he has good in store for you. And obedience to the laws that he has given you is meant, to, meant for you to enter into fullness of joy, not deprive you from it. That's what he wants. Do you remember Joe, Joey A? He sat right up here up front around this area. And uh, he, Joe had, a, he had a, a hard life in the past. And during sermons, Joe would on accident from bad habits yell out cuss words from something that I said, whether because he agreed with it or not, or he was just blown away by the truth that was brought before him about Christianity. But either way, he, he's yelling out these words from old habits, and it created this amazing banter in the middle of a sermon. I'm not telling any of you to cuss in the middle of sermons. What I'm saying is it just created a good little banter. And, and I'll never forget uh, his... He, well, he was angry at God because he felt God took his wife from him. And then someone invited him to church, and he discovered grace, and it changed him, changed the way he lived. And I'll never forget, his baptism was right, like right here. And I've never seen anybody do this before, but he, in, the, in the middle, he just dropped to his knees, and he's weeping. And there are tears, but there are tears of joy, and there's tears of sorrow. They're kind of mingled together. And he was changed by grace. And that's what grace will do to you. Grace will, will give you joy and it will change you. And it's, this is proof of your conversion. And if you put all this together, it produces people who are passionate about Christ. Because they've been changed by him. He becomes the centerpiece. The thing we build our life around. And it's the thing we try to win people over to is him, nothing else. We're, we're trying to win people over not to politics, but to him. Not to win people over to some theological thing that we believe, but to him. And it's not that those things don't matter. They matter incredibly. What really matters, though, is Christ. Because, you know, you're never going to have your politics all the way right. I mean, you think you will. And you're never going to have your theology all the way right. But you think you do. And it, But... It, it doesn't matter if you have Christ all the way right because he has you and he's not letting you go. So build your life on him. Make everything about him. Draw, put all your affections upon him and everything else will just end up taking care of itself. Devote your whole self to him. 
Now then the next question we have is, what is conversion like? And the answer is, it's a process. It's not quick. If you're reading the story of Paul, which the mistake I made is, the mistake I made in the past was this was an instantaneous conversion. But it wasn't. It was a process. And we know this because later on in Acts, Paul will tell his own version of the story. And this is likely his version anyways. But as he tells the story, he says, Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then Jesus says, it's, it's difficult to kick the goads. But what's a goad? A goad is something that's sharp, like a sharp stick that is used to prod and push along animals the way they should go. So a shepherd might have a goad to move the sheep along. Or a farmer might have a goad to move the ox along the way that the animal should go. And what Jesus is saying to Paul, and maybe to you, you stubborn ones here, is, Paul, it's really difficult. I'm trying to get you to go the way that you should go, but you keep turning around and you keep kicking this sharp stick. It's painful for you. Why are you doing this? And it's because he passionately did not want to believe. And what are, the, what are some of the ways that Paul was being prodded by, by God? Well, first... It was all these pesky Christians in his life. He was trying to get rid of them. He was trying to take their joy away, trying to take their faith away. And the more he did to them, the more it stirred their joy and the more that it strengthened their faith. He, and, and he got so frustrated, he said, all right, I'll, I'm going to do something. I'm going to have them all arrested. I am going to devote my life to sending all of these pesky Christians into prison. I'm going to devote my life to seeing them murdered. I'm done with them. And as he do does this, a movement forms. Because he's persecuting the church, a movement of joy and a movement of faith goes out throughout the surrounding land. So that's the first prodding. The second prodding is from Stephen. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we see this amazing story of Stephen, this, this man of faith, relying on grace, who is executed by the command of Saul. And when Saul watched Stephen die, it terrified him. Because he saw the way he went out. This was not a man that was a coward. This was a man who was brave. And this was a man who was convinced with his entire being that he was about to be welcomed into the arms of God and his king Christ. Because when Stephen died, at Paul's order, Stephen says, look, I see the heavens open up and I see my king, my savior, my Christ, and he's standing for me to welcome me in. And he's testifying to the father, I am his and he is mine. And Stephen says, and it's nothing because of what I've done. It's all grace. Everything. It's a gift. And it terrifies Saul because Saul has devoted his entire life to impressing God. To convincing God that he's worthy and acceptable and worthy of love. And Paul's watching as Stephen is getting everything he has always wanted. And Saul's got to be convinced, man, did I have this wrong? Have I devoted my whole life to the wrong thing? And let me tell you something. When you have devoted your entire life to something that isn't true, and that truth starts poking and prodding you, it makes you terrified, but it also makes you angry and violent. And that's why he's being violent towards Stephen and toward the church. Because he's terrified he's got this whole thing wrong. 
And so he becomes this cornered lion as grace is inching closer and closer to Saul. And as he roars like this lion, grace laughs at him, swallows him up, and claims him forever. Saul was trying to prove to God that he was lovable, and God knew the whole time he already was. He wanted him, and that's it. If God wants you, he's going to get you. You can roar all you want. He roars louder, like we sang in that song. And if you aren't a Christian, it may be that you have been prodded here today into this moment, and you're being cornered by grace. Or maybe this is the beginning of your prodding, and you're going to be prodded maybe for the next year until you finally are swallowed up by this grace. And if you are a Christian, this story of Saul is pretty important for you to understand because it means something. If Saul can be converted, anybody can. And it means that there are people in your life that maybe God has prodded you towards. Stephen's sermon that he gave, that Saul heard, maybe it's the seed, whatever, it might be, it might not be. Maybe for Stephen, nobody came to faith through his preaching except for Saul. And that means that sermon changed the world. Because Saul would become Paul and he'd go on to change the world. And that means that you don't know who your neighbors are, you don't know who your coworkers are, and you don't know what God has in store for them. But what he has in store for you is to show compassionate love to them and to prod them along as you've been prodded by grace and by love. And then our last question. What must we do to be converted? What must we believe? Sorry. What must we believe? Don't do anything. You believe something. And the answer is the gospel. Timothy Keller looks at this sermon or this look at this text and he says that What this text is teaching us is that we are far worse than we want to believe. But we are far more loved than we would ever dare to hope. And he says, the key is found in this line, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what he means by this, if you're being, if you you do just something, if if you sin against someone in this room, you're doing it to Christ. It means every single one of your sins are what helps send Christ to the cross. Every single one of your sins are why he hung there. Every single sin of yours is striking the cheek of Christ. Every lie is a lie to Christ. Every bit of anger in you is anger towards Christ. And you're being, you're being in, in that sense, hateful towards the one who came to redeem you. Charles Spurgeon tells a story, a true story, about a vile, despicable, depraved couple in this small area of Britain. And this couple became pregnant. And these people were so bad that their relatives heard that they had, they are expecting a child, and their relatives went and purchased the child from them because they just wanted to get them out of their hands. So they gave them the child, and the, the child was put up for adoption. And later, this father would become a highway robber. And as he's there one day on on this highway, 
ready to rob someone. This rich man is walking along. This rich young man who's been successful in his life, and you could see it by the clothes he wears, how he carries himself. And in a fit of rage, this man robs him and in the process kills him. Later he would find out it was his son. His son heard about his father and mother, heard their condition, and wanted to go and help them, pull them out of their lifestyle that they were living. And later the father would say something like, I realize that I have killed the one who came to redeem me. And we are that same man. We've done this very thing with Christ. All of our sins have sent him there to the cross. We're, we're a bit worse than we want to believe. But we are far more loved than we ever dared hope because the same line, Saul, why are you persecuting me, means anytime someone persecutes a Christian, it means they're persecuting Christ, which means we're one with Christ. We're united by faith in this conversion. Do you know what's happening right now with the Father, Son, and Spirit? They all have so much intense love for each other that there's like this divine Trinitarian dance that's happening. And the the Spirit is exclaiming and praising His love and the glory of the Father and the Son. And the Son is exclaiming and praising the Spirit and the Father. And the Father is exclaiming and showing this love that He has for the Spirit and the Son. And there's this dance that's happening. And by faith, what happens is you get swept up into this dance. Because the Holy Spirit, by faith, dwells in you. And you know what the Spirit is crying out within you? Father. Like, let me to my Father. Let me to the Father. Which means the Spirit is getting you to Him. And He sees you and He says, Oh, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And He looks at you because you're clothed now in the righteousness of Christ because Christ gave you His perfect record. And that means there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. His love is constant never ending and it is pursuing you to the ends of the earth you are loved and not just by God but you're loved here in this room (laughs) it's true Saul he knows what he's done to the church he knows who he's been he's famous for his persecutions and he walks to Ananias, and he know, Saul knows that Ananias knows his history, his story. And I don't know what's been said to Saul up until this point. This could be the first words he hears from a Christian. And he walks up to Ananias, and Ananias says, brother. He calls him brother, despite everything that he's done. No matter what you have done, in your past, no matter what you will do, I'm your brother. You're my brother. You're my sister. One, we're a family, united in this grand Trinitarian dance together. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's all accomplished by Christ because we're, we're traversing through this sea trying to figure out what to make of this life, trying to build up this ship that could sail us to some shore that will hopefully deliver for us. And man, our ship is looking bad. 
And Christ comes along out on this ocean where we are lost. And he, and he says, give me your sin. Let me take them. And there on the cross, he carries the weight of the sin of all the world. And he sinks down into the bottomless abyss in hell and in death. And there he takes the cross and he rebuilds it into the ship. And he rises up from the grave. And now he floats upon the waters of sin and death. He floats over them. And he says, come and climb up upon me. And we climb up upon him all together as one. And we now sail in the ship with our captain who is Christ. And we sing of his great love, that we, the great love that we have for him. And he sings back to us of his love that he has for us. And it's all possible because the cross is true and the resurrection is true. The cross and the empty grave give us this. Secure it. You are loved. Let's pray. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, we love you. Help us when we run from you. God, we praise you. Help us when we see you and think you're dull. God, we need you. Make us alive to all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.